Let's begin looking for the living in the last place we would expect to find the living. Friends, this is my last Easter sermon at San Marino Community Church since I'm retiring this month, and this is my 16th Easter sermon. Being your pastor has been a blessing with many wonderful rewards, but also some challenges. Sometimes pastors hear things that take them by surprise. For example, Bishop Melvin Wheatley tells the story of preaching on the subject of suffering and its meaning at his Methodist church. And after sharing his most profound insights and expounding on the scriptural witness to the best of his ability, he was greeted at the door following worship by one woman who simply said, Oh, Reverend Wheatley, I never knew what it meant to really suffer until I heard you preach. <laughs> kind of reminds me of the man who greeted the minister at the conclusion of worship, and he said, you know, every one of your sermons is better than the next. Being a pastor's kid has certain drawbacks too. Our three children can testify to that. Reverend Peter Marty tells the story of conscripting his son Jacob, then in the seventh grade, into a service for the children's message one Sunday morning. Jacob replied, sure, Dad, before he really knew the full extent of the duties that day. His father had procured a large cardboard box used for refrigerators, which he had cut and then draped with a black cloth stretched over the top of it to look like a coffin. And this was to function as the grave in which Jacob would lie like a dead man right in front of the chancel. Now the tough part was that this unsuspecting 12-year-old had to be there motionless for a full 25 minutes before the start of worship. Climbing into the box at any other time would have exposed the secret of his hidden presence there for those who were arriving for worship. So early Sunday morning, his father wrapped Jacob in toilet paper from head to foot. Four rolls served as his grave clothes, and they just walked around and around him until he was completely covered except for just a small opening over his mouth and his nose. And they lowered Jacob into the burial vault and placed the cloth over the top. And his dad whispered thanks and said goodbye. During the next 40 minutes, his father kept an eye on that box, which never moved even slightly. Well, finally, the time came to call the children forward. Reverend Marty told them the story of Lazarus dying and rising again at the command of Jesus, whereupon the father turned and bellowed, Lazarus, come out. Well, the box began to move. Something was stirring inside, and the 75 kids there for the children's message all looked like they were about to wet their pants, and the black cloth fell on the side and Lazarus, I, I mean Jacob, stood there looking like the Michelin man before the entire congregation. And as everyone was making their own sense of the Sunday morning resuscitation, dad began to peel off the tissue from Jacob's face. Now what he had not accounted for in the unventilated box was the heat. And the poor kid was drenched with sweat which meant that the tissue clung to him like 
sort of saturated gauze. And the pastor then asked the children to help him peel off the grave clothes and unbind him. Now, if you've ever tried to clean up a yard after it's been teepeed, and then the rain or the dew has fallen, you can imagine the challenge of getting all of that off Jacob. You see, rising from the dead is not easy, even when it's just a reenactment. According to Luke's gospel, on the first day of the week when the women led by Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and didn't find a body, it left them perplexed. An empty tomb proves nothing. An empty tomb means everything. But an empty tomb proves nothing. What the empty tomb means can only be known by the truth known to faith. By the truth as it's perceived through the eyes of faith. The women are almost rebuked. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. The very first witnesses to Easter's resurrection reported back to the 11 disciples. And their response was, ho-hum. They didn't believe him. It sounded like a fairy tale to them. You know, it's funny that through the years, that's precisely the response to so many Easter sermons. It seems, in the words of Luke, an idle tale. I mean, pick your own language. A silly story. Utter nonsense. A foolish yarn. When the women return from that cemetery on Easter morning, they brought with them word of an empty tomb and some astonishing news. He's not here, but has risen. And then they're instructed to remember. Remember what Jesus told you. Remember was one of our seven Hebrew words every Christian should know in our sermon series earlier this year, Zakor. And I said then in a sermon, it's especially important to remember that we've been delivered in the past so we don't wrongly think that we are to begin to take life into our own hands for our own purpose and making something of ourselves. We're called to remember the past a history of deliverance, and to remember it in such a way that we actually participate in the story of deliverance again and again and again. Understanding that the promise and the presence of God in Jesus Christ are enough to secure our existence because then we live with gratitude. It's all a gift. You know, just parenthetically, in all four Gospels, it was the women who were the first ones to proclaim the good news of Easter. And the first Easter sermon ever preached was by a woman. I'm just saying. And the 11? The 11 at the beginning of the story, they don't perceive. But by the end of the story, they become apostles 
which means those who are sent. Now, the announcement that he's not here, but he's been raised, is not really connected with the words of location as they are in Mark and Matthew's Gospels. Here the women are told to remember what Jesus said while he was still in Galilee, but not that he was going to go ahead of the disciples and meet them in Galilee. Luke's description leaves us with a gap in our imagination as to the location of the missing, embodied, and risen Christ. You know, this year has left us all a little perplexed. All of us with some gaps in our imaginations. I mean, the pandemic, the social and racial unrest, the political turmoil, the economic difficulties, all of these things have contributed to leave us perplexed and maybe just a little stuck, a little stagnant in our thinking, a little immobilized in our actions. We, too, are looking for the living. My goodness, we even sent a Mars rover into space looking for new forms of life. We've asked our pharmaceutical labs to accomplish the impossible and develop a vaccine to combat COVID-19. We're looking for the living, all right. In the midst of this year comes a rather recent and spectacular metaphor for our stagnation. The ever-given cargo ship that ran aground in the Suez Canal, blocking the path of any other ship. And I'm grateful to Wendy Tajima from the Presbytery of San Gabriel for this illustration. With 18,300 containers full of goods, the 220,000-ton, 1,300-foot ship was helpless to extricate itself from its predicament. And its failure blocked hundreds of other ships from getting through the canal to their destination. And that ship stayed stuck for almost a week. For days, no one knew how to free it. There's one photo, perhaps you saw it, of an excavator attempting to loosen sand and mud from the bow of that ship. And it seemed to reflect the enormity of the problem and the minuscule ability that we have to resolve it by comparison. It looked like a toy excavator. And indeed, the, the prognosis was so uncertain that some ships chose to take the long route around the Suez Canal which meant going all the way around the continent of Africa, adding weeks to their journey and $26,000 a day in added fuel cost. Now, the Japanese owners of the ship attempted to acknowledge their regret at the mishap, and they bowed deeply in humility, but that did nothing to move the ship. Eventually, 11 tugboats from many different countries arrived on the scene to attempt to pull the ship back fully into the water. And they managed to budget about 100 feet. No more. But then, in what seems like God's providence, an unusually high tide was due, associated with a full moon. 
And the army of engineers and the salvage operators and the tugboat crews involved in extricating the ship coordinated their work with the high tide. And thank God this massive container ship, almost as long as the Empire State Building is tall, was freed. And the relief and the freedom which was granted to almost 350 block ships was immediate. Now, this Easter, it strikes me as a great metaphor for our life of faith. We just seem to be kind of inextricably stuck in our own stagnation, without much imagination. And the enormity of our broken ambition our own attempts to save ourselves are woefully insufficient, even when we work together. But, but if we admit our need and our helplessness, and if we coordinate our collective efforts with the awesome power of God to save, we can experience the freedom of new life. You know, the eleven at first were stunned and stagnant when they heard the news. They weren't seen clearly. There was a gap in their imagination. In John's gospel, the web of seeing occurs three times. Three different verbs in this passage. In the modern English translation, they're all the same word. But in the original Greek text, there are three verbs used. And I'm grateful to my friend, Reverend Peter Hinsiglou, a Greek teacher for this insight. Jesus came first to the tomb, excuse me, John came first to the tomb, and he saw the grave clothes. But he didn't go in, he just looked. And the verb there is vlepe, which is, kind of casual observation, the way we see birds on a wire or people passing us at the mall. This is our physical sight, one of the five senses. Peter came next and he went inside and he saw the empty tomb, the grave clothes, the headpiece wrapped up separately but undisturbed, not unraveled. This is the verb thero from which we get the English word theory, and it means to consider. So Peter looked at the information with his physical sight, and he began to consider and theorize what happened here. And then finally, John comes inside the tomb and sees what Peter sees, and the scriptures tell us that John saw and believed. And the Greek verb used this time is eiden, which is to see with a sense of metal understanding. This would be like our modern English phrase, I see what you mean. We don't actually see thoughts or ideas with our physical eyesight, but it's a mental scene, a clarity of understanding. John entered, saw, and understood you see, an empty tomb proves nothing. An empty tomb means everything. 
But you have to see with an understanding through the eyes of faith. We're all looking for the living. We're all interested in so much more than just making a living. We want to know life and life abundant. And this Easter, as life begins to pick up speed again, maybe we can really connect with what matters most. We've certainly all had time to reevaluate how we're living and what we're giving ourselves to. Maybe we can look into that empty tomb that means everything with new eyes and deeper understanding. It's amazing what can be seen when you look closely enough. Professor Seltzer at the time, he was the professor of medicine at the medical school at Yale. He tells the story of a hospital room visit. He says, I stand by the bed where a beautiful young woman lies, her face post-operative and her mouth twisted and palsy. A tiny twig of the facial nerve and muscle in her mouth had been severed and it will be like that from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. But nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, he had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband standing in the room stands on the opposite side of the bed and Together, the two of them just seemed to dwell in the evening light, isolated from the doctor, private. Who are they, he asks himself. He and this wry mouth that I have made, who gaze and touch each other so generously and invitingly. And the young woman speaks finally, and she says, Will my mouth always be like this. Yes, says the doctor, it will, because the nerve was cut. And she nods and is silent. But then the young man smiled and he said, I like it. It's kind of nice. And all at once, Dr. Seltzer says, I know who's speaking and I understand. And the young man, unmindful, bends down to kiss her crooked mouth. And the doctor says, I'm so close I can now see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers. To show her that their kiss still works. You see, the gospel story proclaims that Christ... In Christ, God has twisted his lips to show us that his love for us still works, no matter how twisted our lives, no matter how stuck or stagnant we may have become. There's a life in Christ that never dies. When Jesus commanded Lazarus to come from that tomb to emerge, he came out with his hands and his feet 
bound and his face wrapped in cloth. I unbind him and let him go, Jesus commanded. Little Jacob, plain Lazarus, needed to be unbound as well. The fact is, we all need an unbinding. That's what the church is. That's what it does for one another and for the world. We unbind each other. We're moving from death to life, from bondage to freedom, from slavery to a promised land. That's the good news of Easter. He's risen. He's risen indeed. Amen.